The bottom line is that squirting is something that women can do. It is not necessarily the only way to achieve pleasure. A lot of people do achieve pleasure with it. Some people don't. It doesn't matter. It's all about how you feel and that's it. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Dr. Rina Malik is not only a huge YouTube star with nearly 2 million subscribers discussing everything from erectile dysfunction to UTIs, but she's also a leading urologist and expert in pelvic medicine and sexual health. Today's episode is going to break down those sometimes embarrassing topics, so let's just get a few words out there to get you all warmed up. Lubrication, masturbation, orgasms, and stimulation. But first, let's find out from Rena about the importance of your pelvic floor. We're never really taught about the pelvic floor. So how do we know if we have this healthy pelvic floor? And what does a healthy pelvic floor look like? I'm saying that with this because I feel like it could be quite different for many people. It's hard to know. Honestly, the average person will not know if their pelvic floor is unhealthy. But you will know if you start noticing that you're having urinary incontinence, urinary frequency, you're having urinary urgency, or you're having difficulty emptying your bladder, it could be a sign of an abnormal pelvic floor. If you're having bowel symptoms like constipation, if you're having back pain, if you're having pain with sex, if you're having pain for men in their testicles, sometimes this can be a sign of an abnormal pelvic floor. And it needs to be evaluated and examined to assess if there's an abnormality in the pelvic floor or not. Just thinking about this, I want to get a little bit more into the pelvic floor, but I'm just also wanting to talk a little bit about sex in this conversation as well. And I'm just going to put it in there early. So I just thought I'll pop that in there now. So people who are listening to this aren't going to be kind of blown away in 20 minutes when we start really kind of getting into the importance of sex and orgasms and, and masturbation. Let's just throw those words out there now because they are, it is really important. And just thinking about the pelvic floor, how important is this for a good sex life? I think people overestimate like having a strong pelvic floor for better orgasms. I mean, yes, if you have a strong, healthy pelvic floor, some people will perceive stronger orgasms, better sex life. But a lot of people don't know exactly how to strengthen their pelvic floor. So people hear the term Kegel and they try doing all these things. They don't actually activate the right muscles. They might be straining their abdomen. They might be straining their gluteal muscles, but they're not actually strengthening their pelvic floor or they're over-strengthening. So just like going to the gym, if you overtrain a muscle, it's going to get sore and hurt. And sometimes it can create tension in those muscles. And when you create like prolonged tension in the pelvic floor, that's what creates all these issues. And so it's sort of like, do you need to do it? You can, absolutely, but it needs to be done sort of in a thoughtful way to make sure that you're actually activating the correct muscles and you're getting the benefit that you so desire. Doing more is not always better, you know, just like going to the gym and doing a ton of reps. If you're doing poor form or you're not doing it correctly, is not going to help you. It's so interesting, isn't it? So much about health just in general is about balance. But it's one of those things, and I know that obviously you mentioned about like what does a, a normal pelvic floor look like or a, or a healthier one. I suffer with the balance back. So I know when I've got a bad back, I actually need to be doing more yoga or more stretching or more lengthening. But I'm now trying to think about my own pelvic floor. And I'm trying to think, do I know if it's too tight? Or do I know if it's too weak? And I feel like I'd be more likely to know if it's more weak. And women hear about this a lot more, I think, due to incontinence. But how can I assess my own pelvic floor and figure out where that is? So it's a bit easier for women because you can feel the pelvic floor muscles through the vagina. So generally, you know, not everyone feels comfortable, but you can palpate your own muscles in the vagina. You should be able to put either like a, you can get like wands that can sense your pelvic floor or you can use your own finger, right? And you can feel, you want it also to be coordinated, right? So if you squeeze, you should feel the muscles squeeze on your finger. And if you relax, you should feel the muscles relax. And say you cough, you should feel the muscles coordinate, like, you know, relax and 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 tighten quickly during that cough. So it should be sort of coordinated uh, when you're bearing down or when you're coughing, you should have kind of normal coordination and your muscles should squeeze and relax as you are trying to do so. And so sometimes that takes a little bit of effort and often 
having a pelvic floor physical therapist, if you are you know, worried about these symptoms, can help to assess your pelvic floor or seeing a urologist or for women, a gynecologist and, or seeing a urologist for women too. We're, we're experts in both. But in general, you know, that can be helpful. And what about men? I was so surprised around the amount of men and like kudos to all you guys that wrote to me. Like, thank you so much because so many men were asking about their pelvic floor. So how can men assess this? Yeah. So honestly, it's very difficult. So the way I assess a, a male's pelvic floor is through a rectal examination, because that's where I can palpate their muscles. It's very difficult for someone to do that to themselves, right? But you can sort of feel if there's tenderness or discomfort in the area, like between the scrotum and the anus called the perineum. So that's where some of the pelvic floor muscles are. And so you can assess that. But I would say, generally speaking, if you find that you're having symptoms that are sort of surrounded around, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of stressed, you're sort of type A personality, or you have a lot of anxiety, and then you're having symptoms of maybe urinary symptoms, or maybe you're having pain with erections or pain with ejaculation, or maybe you're having issues with erections, it could be a sign of a tight pelvic floor. Yeah, because actually, somebody wrote to me, um, a man on my socials and said, you know, does it affect erectile dysfunction if I have a tight pelvic floor? And is that the case? I feel like from what you're saying, that probably is one sign that that could be, could be many things. It can. So if you think about the pelvic floor, when it's tight, right, there's blood flow going around those muscles typically to get to the penis. And so when it gets too tight, it can make that blood flow reduced, basically a simple way of thinking. It can pinch off blood vessels, it can pinch off nerves, all of which are very much required for good sexual function for erections um, in men and sometimes, you know, arousal for women. So let's just think about how we can loosen our pelvic floor before we get onto the tightening. Because I think I hear a lot about how we can kind of like look at strengthening our pelvic floor. But it's also quite new to me to think about actually how, if it is tight, how can we loosen it and what can we do? And like, first of all, the thought that comes to mind is stress, working on our stress. But what other techniques would be really important here? So generally, you want to do exercises that will lengthen. Just like you said, we do exercises like yoga to lengthen the muscles. You want to work on those type of exercises. So we're so lucky that there, you know, we have the internet now. I mean, I was thinking back to like when we were younger, there was no internet. Like you couldn't look these things up. But now if you look up exercises for down training or um, relaxation of the pelvic floor online, there's there's so many wonderful pelvic floor physical therapists who have put exercises online that can help you. But the best way is actually having a pelvic floor therapist with you working on it because they are trained in this. And I don't know what the situation is in the UK, but here we have you know, a reasonable number. You have to find people who are dedicated to pelvic floor and have that's their kind of area of expertise. But there are a good number of pelvic floor therapists and they are going to be like your personal trainer for your pelvic floor because it's really hard for us to understand like, to, to really work on those muscles. Usually if you have a normal functioning pelvic floor, you never think about it, right? You never like ever have to do anything. So it's a very different skill set than just going to the gym and lifting weights, right? Mm. It's just one of those things that we tend to not really think about. The only time until, you know, I really looked into research for this episode was just thinking about hearing in pelvic floor and Pilates. I mean, that's probably the only time or from when women, when they've had babies and kind of afterwards and the importance of the pelvic floor. But we don't really think about kind of, you know, connecting to that as something that's really important, not just for, you know, our health, but also for our sex lives and, you know, our even just mentioning blood flow, but looking at strength. So quite a few questions came in around how can I strengthen my pelvic floor? Because you've obviously mentioned Kegels. Who is Mr. Kegel? And Talk about the terminology around Kegels and, and exercises here. I need to let you in on a health secret that I absolutely swear by. And I've got a special discount code just for you guys. What I love is that it's been developed by a team of biochemists who truly know what they're talking about. And most importantly, they have the evidence to back it up. I'm using a natural mushroom powder every day to keep my immune system strong and also my focus engaged. And what I love is how many of you have tried Bloomin since I've started to mention them on this show. And I've heard so much amazing feedback how it's helped you stay focused 
and also relaxed. Now, they've got four blends to choose from, but one I think that you definitely need this autumn is the Rescue Blend, which helps to support your immune system, but in a natural way. It contains chaga mushroom, which is one of the most antioxidant-rich foods on the planet. One teaspoon has around the same antioxidants as 500 blueberries. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mushrooms. No, they don't get you high and they don't taste of mushrooms. They're just full of the good stuff. Bloomer's products are also, most importantly, double extracted, meaning that you'll get 10 grams of dried mushrooms in just one gram of extract powder twice, absolutely maximizing these health benefits. So head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code BEATAUTUM. That's B-E-A-T autumn, which will give you two jars of rescue for the price of one. Get that strong immune defense this autumn and you can even share it with a friend. Find the link to Bloomin in the show notes. So Peagle's an American gynecologist who coined the term of doing pelvic floor strengthening exercises, and it became very popularized um, as a way to strengthen the pelvic floor, which is essentially tightening those muscles, right? So how you do it, and there's different ways, but we describe it as, you know, when you're urinating and you try to stop the stream of urine, you're doing a Kegel essentially. So that's how you learn what those muscles are. And then you can do those exercises on your own. We also describe it as kind of pulling up and in, but it's sort of difficult and sometimes takes some training, but that's not the only way that you can help your pelvic floor, right? Strengthening your core, your core is sort of integral to your pelvic floor. So strengthening your core can be beneficial and, and you know, not as much crunches, but more like doing um, planks or other ways. And the core is not just the abdomen abdominal muscles, right? It's also the back. And so kind of strengthening the core as a whole can be helpful. And then, you know, there's, like I said, posture, balance, all those things play a role in it. So making sure those things are corrected before you strengthen your pelvic floor, because otherwise you're sort of correcting asymmetric pelvic floor, which may or may not be helpful. It may be harmful. So that's why I think ultimately, if you have the luxury of time and accessibility to a pelvic floor physical therapist, it's going to be super helpful. Yeah, and you're just talking there about, you know, asymmetrical. Can you have an asymmetrical pelvic floor and maybe where some's tighter than the other? And actually that can cause a lot of disturbances. Absolutely, and it can come from like hip pathology. So if you tend to have posture where you're, you know, standing more on one side or the other, it can come from injuries when you were younger. It can come because some people have a shorter leg than the other, right? There's like all these sorts of things, but you just don't know. We go about our days, we might've injured ourselves and just kept going and it can become problematic sometimes for some people. Yeah, I'm so glad that we are touching upon this. I'm really thinking about my leg length as uh, as you're talking. I read, and now we're just going to go straight into the kind of the sex part of things, people. I read that the G-spot stimulation, okay, can help with the relaxation of the pelvic floor. Is that true? And if so, tell us how and why. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, the G-spot is an area of nerves that is essentially, it's not a spot, it's an area, it's a neurogenous zone that's on the anterior vaginal wall, about two to three centimeters in and underneath the urethra, which is the P-tube. And so that area, when stimulated, can be very pleasurable for some people and not for everybody. So I think a lot of women are like, why do I not feel that? Or I don't have a G-spot. Like, that's okay. Everyone has the area, but not everyone finds it pleasurable. And so that area, when stimulated, can assist in reaching climax. And so when you're having orgasms, that's actually a good thing for your pelvic floor, like your muscles are contracting and relaxing. So when they're functioning, it's it's actually a nice way to strengthen your pelvic floor. So have more orgasms, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, but ultimately um, it's not like directly correlated to strengthening those muscles because that's not near the muscles. The muscles are, if you're looking at a female vagina, more in the posterior aspect of the vagina. I love that. So basically, it's the orgasm that really helps with the pelvic floor. It's not necessarily just this one isolated thing, which is the G-spot, which I feel like we hear all about. And so many of us get quite nervous about talking about this, as you said. And I'm so pleased that you said and mentioned for some people, it can bring an orgasm and for others, it can't. Because there's a lot of shame around women and orgasms, I think. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure for women to orgasm and to orgasm on command or to orgasm at the same time as their partner. And like, 
we're different. We're physiologically different. And so that drives me nuts. It makes women feel like something's wrong with them, right? And there's not. And then, you know, men, I think a lot of men want to provide that pleasure to their partner if they're in a heterosexual relationship and they don't know how because no one ever talks about it. I kind of think about um, sexual health at school, right? And that's the only kind of sexual health learnings that we get. And then I think the majority of people, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's less so now, but when I was growing up, a lot of people then learned things from pornography. And so you never really got to actually have a conversation around sex and the pleasures mm-hmm. of sex. Obviously, the importance of STDs and STIs, which is a very important one to kind of mention. But then that, the pleasure of it or the enjoyment of it just kind of gets chucked out the window. And as you said, there is an insane amount of pressure on women and orgasms. And I think it was one of the things that went through my friendship group for years when we were growing up around people worrying about orgasms and whether or not they're having it. So maybe it's kind of a good time actually just to like go on to orgasms because I think there's a lot of conversation around men and ejaculation and there's less so on women. And is there less research in this area? Absolutely. So when you look at the female anatomy, right, the penis and the clitoris are homologues. So in order, the most reliable route to orgasm is through clitoral stimulation for women, right? Not everyone um, needs it, but most women do. And so Mm. in terms of that, right? If you look up clitoris versus look up the word penis in literature, there's actually been a paper published on this. It is like tenfold less research on the clitoris compared to the penis. I actually also feel that is just general in in science with research, like so Mm -hmm. much is dominated on men. And then actually it's meant to be translated into into women's health and it it just isn't. So it's really understudied and especially when when it's in this area. So you mentioned there about the clitoris stimulation kind of being you know, the main source of, of a female orgasm. Can we kind of decode and actually like understand about more of a female orgasm? Because I think it's something that we're never actually taught about as women and for men as well. I think sometimes men think if they're doing a certain technique, it's just meant to lead to an, an orgasm very, very quickly. And actually mm-hmm. it's it's not that way. And, and I think many women struggle with the concept if they can't orgasm, there's something wrong with them. So can we try and decode about like, how can we start this conversation around women and orgasms and how can we get to understand ourselves more in this area and know what what works for us as opposed to what we're kind of reading online and what we think we should be doing? Absolutely. So starting off an orgasm for a woman takes on average 12 to 14, 18 minutes, depending on the route, the, 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 if you're using a toy, not using a toy um, during sex, right? It can vary. It takes a lot longer for women, whereas the average time for a male to climax, and this is just from data on penetrative sex alone. So talking about from the start of penetration to the end is about 5.2 to 5.7 minutes. So it is a, it is a disparity in that if you are focused on just penetrative sex and that's your your main goal, majority of women are not going to orgasm, right? They need more time. Also in terms of arousal and feeling fully aroused and having the physiologic responses of arousal, which is like lubrication, um, is the most common one people talk about, Take can take longer. It can take like 20 to 30 minutes. So there needs to be foreplay involved, right? And I think that there's a lot of times where that doesn't happen because you see all these things on the media where, you know, man sees woman, they immediately penetrate, and a few minutes later she's orgasming or they're orgasming at the same time, which is just not accurate, right? Because of this, and, you know, we touched on the way that women feel pressure, but men also feel pressure to perform, right? Okay. And so they feel this this huge pressure to perform, and then they're like, oh, she didn't orgasm. And that can play a vicious role in their ability to perform because they get anxiety, and they bring that to the bedroom next time, and then they can't perform. And then they feel bad, the partner feels bad because they think it's their fault. And, like, there's so much going on there. And honestly if people were educated more and if they um, talked about sex, I think we would have a much better and healthier society because people wouldn't have so much anxiety. And that anxiety carries through with other things, right? And their work productivity in their relationships with other people. So I think ultimately people don't realize what a huge issue this can be for people. It's devastating. Yeah, it is. And I honestly feel like it really becomes shunted in communication, even with your partners, because I think a lot of people can feel shame just 
obviously internally with themselves, which basically just creates this massive barrier for any kind of growth or understanding for themselves in this area. For then for them to communicate to a partner is, is another barrier to kind of to cross over. So thinking about women's orgasms and thinking about something that's come up a lot as well from my audience, which is sexual dysfunction. I think, obviously, this is something that men talk about a lot. And I know there's a lot on your YouTube around kind of erectile dysfunction and understanding around this for men. But I think there's hardly anything spoken about this for women's health at all. And I think some women might not even aware if this is a, a problem for them, they might just think that they're broken. So how can women understand around sexual dysfunction? Like, how does that look? Is it the fact that they're struggling to orgasm? Is it struggling around lubrication down there? Because all of these things kind of just, I don't feel, are at all spoken about. And it's, I think it's a real barrier, as you said, between relationships as well. Well, the big thing about sexual dysfunction is, is it a bother? right? So if you're not bothered or it's not creating distress in your relationship, it's not a problem, right? Because everyone has a little bit of variety in what their desire is, what their rate of desire is. Everyone's lubrication amount can be variable. Everyone's rate of, you know, desire to have an orgasm or having an orgasm is different. And so I think really the bottom line is, are you bothered? Is this creating a problem in your relationship? And then go talk to somebody about it because even getting education on what is normal, and that's a lot of what I do on my YouTube channel is like how much discharge is normal, for example, or, you know, what mm -hmm. can you expect, right? What's the average rate of, you know, couples having sex, right? It doesn't matter what the average is, but if you're curious and maybe you're having more or less or the same, it may provide you with some reassurance. And so a lot of people ask me around lubrication for this question. Um, which I think falls into the sexual dysfunction. So what is normal lubrication? And how do we know if something's wrong down there? So generally speaking, when you get aroused, right, and arousal, as I mentioned earlier, can take 20 minutes or so, you will create more lubrication. That is a normal physiologic response. The vagina creates a transudate that allows more lubrication to occur. And sometimes it can happen when you're not aroused. You might notice like, oh, like I'm you know, a little bit having a little more discharge than usual. And that can be a protective mechanism too. Like your body will lubricate if it thinks that there may be a chance of any sort of penetration. So you might be watching something and be like, mm, you know, like you may not even think it's that stimulating, but your body's like, oh, you know, that looks sort of stimulating and I'm going to kind of respond to that. And so, you know, when people make a big deal, like, oh, she's so wet, right? <laughs> people say that a lot. Mm. It, it doesn't necessarily yeah. is good or bad, right? It does, it is nice, but I would say that like, it doesn't make or break it. There are, the good thing is we have tons of lubricants available if you're having an issue with lubrication. So there's water-based lubricants. And the thing I think people don't know is that you need to reapply those. They will dry out. So you need to reapply because they're water-based, they evaporate. And ideally, if you're having issues with like recurrent yeast infections, you want to try to find ones that are similar to the pH of the vagina. So they have a sort of bioidentical pH, right? And then there's silicone-based and oil-based. Those are nice because you don't have to reapply, but they're a bit more messy, right? Silicone is a little bit slippery and you need to use just a little bit and it does a, you know, does a good job. Not everyone likes silicone, but I think it's, it's nice in the sense that it lasts a long time. Oil-based, you don't want to use with condoms because they can degrade condoms, but oil-based is nice. And say you don't have any lubricant, like olive oil or coconut oil, works great too. It just can be a little messy on the sheets. Um, so, <laughs> so ultimately, that's great. And then the other thing is there can be hormone changes, even in young women, that can cause decreased lubrication. So if you're taking medications, for example, like oral contraceptives, some people, a small subset of women can notice a decrease in lubrication, um, breastfeeding women, absolutely. And these are because estrogen levels are decreasing. So menopausal, perimenopausal, postmenopausal women will notice a decrease in lubrication. And that's because they're having changes in hormones. So things like vaginal estrogen can very easily correct those issues and restore the normal balance, at least locally in the vagina. I'm so pleased that you just touched upon hormones there. And also thank you just for running through all of those types of different lubrications because that should just be taught when we're having our sexual education as something that's, you know, there's so many different types out there. Again, 
reapplying, people might not be aware that that's actually that's really important. So just having these kind of like tips is so essential, I think, just for one's confidence for having sex. So thank you so much for just touching on that. And then you mentioned hormones during that as well, which I just thought was really important just to highlight. Because obviously you mentioned blood flow and the importance of pelvic floor and all of these other areas that are important, again, for a healthy sex life and and um, and for yourself. And I'm sure there's also neurological ones as well. And like, where is our mental state and how are we feeling? So how much do hormones play a role in all of this? Is it a large part? Because a lot of times so many of us go, it's my hormones. But is that true? Or do they actually play quite a small percentage in all of this? In general sexual dysfunction. So absolutely. I mean, we see a lot of sexual dysfunction around the time of perimenopause and menopause because of the changes in hormones, particularly estrogen and testosterone. So women don't think about testosterone very much, but actually it's the most abundant sexual hormone in our bodies. And when your testosterone decreases, which it does quite dramatically around menopause, people can notice a decrease in libido. And that can be quite distressing for a lot of people because they can be like, well, I used to like this and now I don't anymore. And so a lot of it can be that way. And, you know, our hormones fluctuate over the course of the month. So people may notice a fluctuation in, you know, their desire for sex or, things like that of that nature along with their hormones. So they absolutely do play a role. Very often, yes, it is hormone related, but there can be, of course, as I mentioned, other causes like other medications or other comorbid conditions that can create problems as well. So that kind of takes me on to something which we do not talk about in sexual education. Anyway, we don't talk about this here in the UK. I don't know what it's like, Rina, in the US. You can tell me if this is included. But it's masturbation. And it's something that I think has come up on our podcast, actually. We did a whole topic on shame with somebody called Africa Brooke. And she said her shame started when she was eight. Her mum found herself rubbing herself up against a sofa. And she was told that she shouldn't do that. And it's naughty and it's dirty and never to do that again. And so all of a sudden, from a very young age, she had this like shroud of shame around her. And I'm sure many, you know, when you're thinking about when you were growing up, you'd always kind of run away. And, you know, if this is something you're exploring yourself. So... I want to talk about it because we just don't talk about it. I don't think I've spoken about it since that episode six months ago. So how important is masturbation? Seeing as we're kind of like talking about sexual dysfunction there, let's just move on to things about how can we get to know ourselves more. How important is it for men and women to masturbate? So masturbation is you know, there's many benefits. It's a safe form of sex. It's a way of body exploration. Having orgasms have significant health benefits, right? Like it reduces blood pressure, improves sleep, improves focus. So ultimately, masturbation is completely normal. We see babies in utero, like, masturbating, right? So it is a no complete way. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um you you know it's a completely normal phenomenon. When you have babies, you will see them like grabbing their genitals or rubbing soft toys, whatever, right? Like they're trying to explore and that's completely normal, right? Like that's a normal response to you know exploring your body. Now I think that shame, is, it's a real problem, right? Like what, what we tell our kids is like these sorts of things you just do in private, but it's okay to do, right? Because I think that's what we really want to tell our kids, but our sh- like people are like shocked, right? Like, oh my God, what are you doing? Don't do that again, right? But you're the parent and you're the adult and they believe everything you say. So when you say it like that, they are like, oh no, that's a bad thing right? So shame starts very, very early. And a lot of times people are masturbating to things they feel are maybe unsavory, right? For the public consumption, like they might be watching pornography and then they feel shame around that and around masturbation. Mm -hmm. So I think ultimately like there, you know, masturbation is healthy. The only time I would say it becomes problematic is when you are like doing it in lieu of spending time with your partner or spending time with your friends or your family. And like you, that's all you want to do, which is a very, very rare occurrence. Like it's not that common. So I would say that most people are masturbating just fine and it's good and it's totally fine. And I will say the shame is pervasive. It is one of the most common 
questions I get, like, how often should I masturbate? What's too much? And I'd say, it's fine. There's no, like, right or wrong amount. People always want a number. Like, they want to know, like, what's okay? Like, once a week, three times a week? I'm like, no, it, there's no number, right? Everybody is uniquely different. Are you masturbating and, like, helps you go to sleep at night? Are you just masturbating to, like, um, you know, have pleasure, like, a few times a week? Or It doesn't matter. Like, it's just about as long as you're doing it in a normal, healthy way, it's not creating problems in your life, there should be no shame around it. Thank you for pointing out there should be no shame. I love that you're also talking about numbers because so many things when I pop into YouTube, it's like, how long should I be lasting in bed? What is the average length to masturbate? And it is honestly, everything is so numbers focused. It's the same with, you know, nutrition. It's the same with so many conversations I have on this, like how long, what's the average? Everyone wants to kind of know they're in this like normal range. And what you described there sounded like quite an addiction towards masturbation where it kind of like stopping you living your normal life and actually in general you know if we're actually engaging in this within the week even if we're in a relationship doing it ourselves then this is really healthy and normal something that we aren't told and I'm just going to chuck it out there and just see how you respond to this how should we masturbate how do people know if they're doing it right because as you said, I guess we're starting what I did know, it's blown my mind that we're starting this in the womb. How do we know if we're masturbating correctly and how should we masturbate for men and women? I have a favour to ask. 74% of people that watch this podcast haven't hit subscribe and 15% haven't hit the bell to turn on notifications. I want this podcast to reach as many people as possible to keep sharing expert information and powerful stories to improve your life. So if you've ever enjoyed my podcast, please hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications. Doing this small favor will really help me. Thank you. So is it pleasurable? Yes, then you're doing it right. Okay, so that, that's one. <laughs> Two is, are you doing it the same way every time? Because that can make sort of challenges when you're with a real person. So you want to use different techniques. So use different stimuli. So don't always watch porn. Don't always read a like do different, read a book, use fantasy, masturbate with different techniques and don't always use the same, whether for men it's hand positioning, for women it might be a toy, right? Like try different things so that your body doesn't get accustomed to one way. That's called idiosyncratic masturbation. Like some people do it the same way every single time. And then when they're with a partner, they can't climax because they're so used to climaxing a certain way. Okay. And so that actually leads me into my next question, which is like, how may masturbation harm our sex life? Because I obviously speak about all the benefits here, but can masturbation actually harm our sex life in any way and I feel like you've just made a really valid point on how it might do but is there any others you know you can if you're being very aggressive like for particularly in in men and you're masturbating with like um not a firm enough erection, you can create some micro trauma to the penis. But generally speaking, I think as long as you're doing it, you know, in a normal, healthy manner in the terms of like, you're not like being super aggressive and you're um, all doing different variety, there should be no problems. Okay. So generally, I'm taking from this that we should all be masturbating. We should be making sure that it's feeling nice. And actually, there should be no shame connected to it. But there could be a couple of times that if we're just doing something, I feel like it's similar to exercise, you know. And it made me just think, like, should we do masturbation like we just want to go and do it to yoga? You know, we go to yoga and sometimes when we're not always feeling like it, but when we do it, we feel better. And reducing that shame, should we be thinking about sex, our sex lives and masturbation in that way, similar to how we think about yoga, but actually making sure that we're doing different types of yoga, that's important, rather than just doing the same things when we are doing the same technique every time. Well, I think you don't want it to be like a chore. (laughs) You don't want to be like, I need to do this today because it's good for my health. Like, no, you don't want to do that. But you can. There's definitely people out there that are doing that, Rena. There's definitely people (laughs) out there that are doing that. Yeah, no, you shouldn't be forced to masturbate. But um, if you, in terms of like, you don't always want to do the same thing at the gym every day, right? You don't want to lift just your biceps and not your, you know, like you need you need to use opposing uh, muscle groups, push, pull, whatever, right? So same thing, you need to have variety and not do the same thing every time. Yeah, okay, well, there you go, guys. You've got to have variety when masturbating and I guess also maybe when you're having sex I imagine it's exactly the same thing of not just making sure you're following 
following the same formula. And so when I was looking at your YouTube, which I have to say is amazing, it's so gripping when you're on there um, and you just end up looking down all of these different videos where you're like, wow, these are things people just do not talk about at all. You know, from how long your penis length should be, how can you increase your penis length? Um, again, the average time to have sex, all of these different questions um, around sexual health. One that really stuck out, which had 3.6 million views. And I think this is something that women can get quite stressed about. And it's called squirting. And I was like, okay, let's just touch on this topic because it's really important. Um, and I know we've already kind of touched a bit on female orgasms. We kind of started it by touching as well at the beginning of the conversation in relation to the pelvic floor on the G-spot. Can you describe what is squirting? Because I think this becomes very misconstrued, especially from porn. How is it different from ejaculation as well? Yes. So squirting and ejaculation are both essentially emitting fluid from the urethra at the time of orgasm. And well, not and so basically when you're having ejaculation, it's typically a small amount of fluid that occurs with climax that can be like sort of milky in color and is from the skein's glands. And these are glands that are in that area, the G-spot area, um, that essentially create fluid and sort of lubricate the area a little bit. And squirting is usually a combination of that plus some fluid that's released from the bladder. And it's usually colorless, odorless, and the volume can range, but it's definitely not as much as you're seeing on pornography, right? Porn is a edited product. They, um, they add special effects to make it look very much more voluminous. And a lot of people, I think, misconstrue like, oh, squirting is always associated with pleasure. And what I'll say is that the research shows that, yes, some people feel like there's more pleasure or they feel like it's a superpower that they have, but some people think it's kind of messy and they don't like it and they feel like not great about it. And not everyone squirts. And that doesn't mean you're not having pleasure, right? So I think the issue is that people think this is a visual sign of pleasure, right? Men ejaculate. Mm. So we know that they are reaching climax and that is important to a lot of people. And then women don't have that, right? Unless they're a squirter. And, and so I think that's sort of where that this like obsession with squirting is in society. But like, again, I think it's not studied very well because it's hard to study like this sort of thing, in a, mm -hmm. you know, in a, a research setting, like, oh, how do you find squirters and how do you, right? You watch them climax or what you collect the fluid afterwards. And there have been studies where they do that to kind of see what the components are, right? To decide where is this fluid coming from? That's kind of how we know this data. But ultimately they're small studies and that's all we know. The bottom line is that squirt is something that women can do. It is not necessarily the only way to achieve pleasure. A lot of people do achieve pleasure with it. Some people don't. It doesn't matter. It's all about how you feel and that's it. How do you feel? Do you feel pleasure? Great. You're good. That's it. That is the biggest indicator that people, I guess, need to start connecting to themselves as pleasure. Is there kind of a percentage on the scale of people that do do this, people that just don't? Is it more people do or less people don't actually engage in this? These studies are really small. So I would say somewhere between 20 and 40%, depending on the study you look at. So it's not a majority. And I think ultimately um, people may do it and not even know it. Right. And like, that's why it's hard to say like how many people really do it because a lot of people are, are not perceiving that, or maybe they don't like notice because they're already so well lubricated and it's already sort of messy at the time of climax. Right. So like, whatever, I think it's hard to say. I think that's something that's just really important, kind of knowing that you're not an anomaly in this, you know, and knowing that I know the studies are small, but still 20, 40 percent, that's not even the majority or half of the people, that actually this is something that we shouldn't be putting a lot of pressure on ourselves for. And just good to have these conversations. I feel like this podcast now should be taking into sexual health education and just played to people. So people start understanding these terms and start becoming familiar with them when they're younger and they take that pressure off. Because I guess yeah. like, a really big part around this. And I'm sure you see this as a urologist. I'm sure you have a lot of people coming to you with an immense amount of shame. And even people then, when they're getting to see you, there's a big barrier of people probably not even feeling, you know, confident enough to come and see you because there's so much shame in this area. 
Yeah. And, you know, to, to school's credit, they have a lot to teach, right? They got to teach you uh, all these curriculum that are required by, at least in the U.S., like by the state or by the country. And so I get, I get that they only have so many classes dedicated to sexual education and they have to focus on safety and consent and like things that people need to know. But there is a whole host of things that we should be teaching younger kids. And I think you know, it, it starts because one, we don't feel comfortable talking about sex. It's like, right, it, they don't feel comfortable. When you look at how people learn about sex, the majority is through pornography. And then the next subset is through, you know, family, like you'd learn from your parents and then friends, right? But it's like very few are learning from, I mean, school is like a far, far cry, right? But but very few are learning like the normal functions from people who are normal. They're watching pornography, which as I said before, is an edited product and it's not realistic, right? Those people are porn uh, actors for a reason. They've chosen that profession because they have have certain anatomic features or whatever, right? They they and they also have a lot of sexual confidence. So I think that's um, a very different scenario than what's actually normal. Totally, and I think you know what you cover is is such a large range. People might not even be aware of what urology is. So maybe we should just kind of cover that as a question. Um, like, what is urology, and what do you think that we need to be paying more attention to in this area? I mean, urology is a great specialty. We cover, we're essentially medical and surgical doctors of the genitourinary tract. So anything from the kidneys all the way down to the genitals, we cover it. And so that can be things like kidney stones, tumors, urinary issues, uh, infertility issues, kids with urinary issues. And, you know, me, I specialize, as you mentioned earlier, in female pelvic medicine, reconstructive surgery, and sexual medicine. And so those fields essentially encompass things like urinary leakage, prolapse, issues with bladder that's associated with prostate, with nerve conditions, um, and also any sort of reconstruction of those areas. And then, you know, in sexual medicine, we're talking about ejaculation, arousal, orgasm, you know, those sorts of issues, any, any issues surrounding that area, essentially. And pelvic pain, interstitial cystitis, uh, there's just a whole host of things that we take care of. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a, a field that people delay seeking care in, right? Like whether it's even a urinary issue, which is embarrassing, right? Mm -hmm. If you're wetting your pants, you're kind of embarrassed about it, right? They don't come. They delay care for, for a variety of reasons for a long period of time, which ultimately builds shame, may worsen their condition over time because they're not getting care early when it's easier to treat. And so, and ultimately, like if you have blood in the urine, that's one thing I will say people still will delay, but that needs to be evaluated to like rule out cancers. So I think those sorts of things, like, again, people will be like, ah, I'm okay. I see a lot of like young men with lumps in their testicles. I don't see a lot of it, but there are, you know, in, in the history of my career, I've mm. seen a lot, a few a year where they've delayed seeking care because they have a testicular mass that turns out to be, might be testicular cancer or a penile mass that might be penile cancer, right? So like those sorts of things, because they're in, you know, very private areas and we're scared about what it could be. And like my favorite thing is someone comes in for something that's completely benign and I get to tell them like, I'm so glad you came. And you don't have anything wrong with you, right? Because I get to give them that like reassurance. And you might be like, oh, what a mm. waste of a visit. But I just gave them like th their life back, right? The anxiety they had about this little thing that's completely benign, not cancerous, not going to hurt them. Now they know that and they can go live their life without anxiety and stress. So like you might think like, oh, that's a waste of time. It's not. It is super important for you to be comfortable living your life and feeling comfortable that nothing's wrong with you. Completely. And I think I I've heard a lot about this you mentioned kind of like the prostate as well around like men going to get their prostate checked regularly and is that something that you think should be more talked about because I was just googling the stats and one in eight men will be diagnosed with prostate prostate cancer in their lifetime I mean it's a huge thing and I don't think I know many of my male friends in their 30s or 40s that are going to get their prostate checked and actually it's something that's really important 
So in their 30s and 40s, you don't need to, unless they have a family history. So if you have a family history of prostate okay. cancer, or you're African-American, or you have other genetic-like conditions that are so, and you would know that because you had multiple family members with cancer, you can get screened early. But usually at about 55 is when we start screening for prostate cancer. And so that includes usually a blood test like a PSA, which is a screening test. So you can have a high PSA for a variety of reasons, but it sort of tells us, okay, should we look further into this and rule out cancer. And then also a digital rectal exam, which is essentially a, a finger in the butt where we feel the prostate, make mm-hmm. sure we don't feel any nodules. And it, it, it inspires a lot of anxiety in young men. But I would say like we're used, this is like our job and we do this all day. We make it as comfortable as possible for you. And if you're uncomfortable, we stop, right? We don't have to do it, but it's important to get done um, because sometimes you can get higher grade, more aggressive prostate cancers. And I think there's a ton of misinformation around like prostate cancer doesn't kill you and you don't need to get checked. And yes, there are low-grade cancers that will probably never become a problem and can be watched or observed for some period of time or you know getting recurring biopsies. But then there are higher-grade cancers that will get worse and create problems and metastasize. And those are the ones we want to catch. And so I think if you're between the ages of 55 and 69 and of good health, absolutely get screened. After about the age of 70, we usually have a discussion with you saying, if you think you're going to live longer than 10 years, and that's a hard discussion to have, then you should continue screening. But if you don't, then you're probably going to die of something else, right? And so it's a kind of assessment of your other healthcare problems, because usually prostate cancer is very slow growing. Well, okay, so that's interesting. So over the ages of 55, so actually, I've just kind of taught off my friends for no reason in this conversation. So apologies to anyone in their 30s and 40s that I said that too. For me, it was something that was really on the kind of topical conversation this year. I keep seeing it a lot in the media about men needing to get their prostate checked. And I kind of thought, actually, it's probably quite important to go and get your MOT. But good to know that that's from 55. And within this, like, is there anything that you just really find is important to kind of mention that people should be paying more attention to? Because obviously, you know, for me, getting the most out of this was banishing the shame around sex, sexual health, you know, understanding more about our pelvic floor. I think it was so isolated to women. I only heard about it in Pilates and from my friends that had babies, but men, I think I asked my partner and he didn't, you know, he didn't really even know how to answer that question. So I think kind of like covering these areas are really important. But for you as a urologist, is there anything else that you think that we really need to be paying more attention to in this area? I'm so happy that we've teamed up with Bloomin for this season of the podcast. Try their natural mushroom powder to support your immune system this autumn. Head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code BEAT, B-E-A-T, autumn, to get two jars of mushroom powder for the price of one. There is a link in the show notes. I would just say that if you feel like there is an issue in any of the areas I talked about, like don't delay. But I would say that for... Uh, for women, the one thing I do notice a lot is that people start to think that leakage after having a baby is normal, right? Like, oh, of course I leaked a little bit when I, you know, when I jumped on the trampoline with my kid. And it is common. It is about one in three women that will experience incontinence, but there are options to treat it. And so if it's bothering you, you can get help. And then in terms of men, I will say, and, and women too, if you're having issues in the bedroom, we know this better for men because uh, again, there's more studies, but I think it's probably the same for women is if you're having issues with erectile function or in women's case, like clitoral engorgement and sensation, it can be a, like a canary in the coal mine we call. So a sign that there may be heart disease or other cardiovascular conditions because the blood vessels to the genitals are much smaller than the blood vessels to the heart. So if they become blocked for whatever reason, if you have some blockage in your heart, right, the first place you're going to see it is your genitals. And so if you're having issues in the bedroom, see your primary care doctor, get a cardiovascular evaluation. So whatever that may be for you, depending on your other risk factors, can be blood work, can be an EKG, can be a stress test. Again, that's all kind of decided by your doctor, but get that evaluation because it can be very important. It could save your life. Wow. Gosh, that is something that should really be a headline on so many things, actually. Like one of the biggest links with heart disease, think about your genitals. But 
that's something that I was completely unaware of. So thank you so much for sharing that. And if anyone does feel that, please don't let the shame stop you going to get seen and speaking to your doctor. And so like for our Apple bonus question, which is kind of for our wonderful Apple subscribers, something that was a recurring question to me, Rena, and it's actually that I personally would was struggling with when I was in my early 20s a lot, was UTIs, so urinary tract infections. And about five people specifically asked exactly the same question, but we had about 35 questions just on this topic alone, which is how do I prevent UTIs, chronic UTIs, so ones that are recurring all the time? Now, if you want to listen to that, and I strongly advise that you do, it's around such an important topic that many of you ask me on UTIs, head over to Apple Podcasts now and subscribe to Live Well, Be Well. For now, Rena, I have one more question for you. What does live well, be well mean to you? I think for me, living well and being well means prioritizing my health. And I think as I've gotten older, I've made more of an effort in terms of like the whole body. And if everyone exercise and ate well, we would be out of a job as physicians, right? We wouldn't, like our clinics would be like half the size or a quarter of the size that they are now. And so like, honestly, that is going to prevent so many problems down the line, right? Eat well, exercise Mm. well, get good sleep. I mean, I'm, I noticed this so much in myself. Like when you're younger, like you can stay up all night and you're like fine the next day. But like for me, if I don't get a good amount of sleep, like my whole next day, my productivity is down. I'm not doing well. I'm not in a great mood. I might like be more snappy with my kids, whatever it is. And I think sleep is something that in our society, we don't give enough attention Mm -hmm. to, right? Everyone's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Mm -hmm. I just need more time to scroll on my phone. I'm guilty of it too. Like I want my me time before bed, whatever that is. And uh, I think that really just like saying like, look, this is my self-care. Going to bed is how I'm going to feel good about myself and really Mm -hmm. optimizing that. Like we want to invest in those sorts of things. Like stop investing in going out to eat expensive, you know, like calorie laden meals and like spend, invest in like, I, I had a friend who's like, yeah, we, we, when we travel, we find the best CrossFit gym. And I was like, that's awesome. Like that's, you know, people travel to like find the best brewery or find the best restaurant or find the best wine or whatever it is. And these people go and find the best CrossFit gyms around the country. And I was like, that is cool. Like we need to change our social narrative around like what we do. And I, you know, let's go for a hike. Let's do something that also makes us feel good. Right. But it's not surrounded around food and around, um, you know, alcohol or other things. I could not agree with you more, but I'm also saying, how much sleep did you get last night? Because you're up during this at 5 a.m. <laughs> not enough, uh, not enough. But um, like I said, I, I am actively working on it and I will probably be continuing to work on it for my whole life. But I, like, at least <laughs> I've, you know, I, I try. <laughs> no, normally I try. And I'm usually up at, you know, five, six o'clock as a surgeon anyway. So it's not uh, it's not that bad. I mean, we are hugely grateful, myself and all our listeners for you getting up at 5 a.m. to do this. Thank you so much. That is complete dedication. But I um, could not agree with you more on sleep. It's kind of the cornerstone to our health. If we sleep bad, the rest of the day, everything, every decision we make can be exhausting. And it's, I think, something that I'm trying to work on it a lot more as well so um thank you so much for coming You're on welcome. thank you for all your knowledge i could talk to you for hours there were so many things i wanted to cover in today's episode and i hope we just got a snippet of it and yeah have a i hope you have a lovely day and a good restful night's sleep tonight <laughs> thank you thank you i will <laughs> you too I've got a quick question for you before you go. Are you ready to reset your health? If you've been listening to my podcast or watching my YouTube channel for a while, you'll know that I believe everyone's well-being journey is totally unique and it needs to be tailored to you. But sometimes with all that important information out there, it's tough to know what to listen to, what to ignore or to prioritize, how to make the best decision for you. It means taking that first step just gets put off, delayed, or even ignored. But I'm here to help, and I am so excited to offer you my 30-day mini course to help revitalize, restore, and totally reset your health so you can discover the happiest of you. 
Your journey might include harnessing your breathwork and mindfulness game, changing up your diet for healthier meals, or simply improving your daily habits to be healthier and happier. Whatever your decision, my course is the perfect jumpstart you need. And you'll get access to the course for a one-off payment for just $14.99. Just click the link in the description or visit my website and I'll see you there. Thanks for listening.